Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, you gave us that promise that when he, the spirit of truth, shall come, he will guide to all truth. Not some truth, but to all truth. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be humble. Father, you are looking for people who you can show yourself strong on behalf of, as it says in 2 Chronicles. And Lord, you promised in your word that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, you will lift us up. And so we pray and ask that our hearts would be open to receive the holy word. And we pray for understanding, God. Only you can help us to understand the things of scripture. And so bless each person. By the time they leave, may every person sense and feel the Holy Spirit's presence in this room tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, we're going to start doing some question and answer session uh, right before the message starts. So if you have some questions and you say, I'd like to have this answered, there's a little green box right there. Joe, do you see that green box right there? Yes, very good. Could you... All right, there you go. We have some of our guests. Thank you very much for holding that up. Just go ahead and put your question right in there, and we'll answer it. But one of the questions that I'm going to answer tonight is about the rapture. It's about the what? The rapture. The word rapture does not appear in Scripture whatsoever. And oftentimes, a lot of people have a lot of questions about the secret rapture. So here is the theology behind the rapture idea or the rapture theory, and it goes something like this. People believe that at one time, at the very end, something's going to happen to a certain group of people. They're going to be invisibly raptured. They're going to disappear. And then there's going to be a period of seven years where there will be a second chance for the rest of God's people to repent. And it is during those seven years that the Antichrist shows up, the mark of the beast happens, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes back with all his glory and destroys the wicked. And so this is the theology behind the secret rapture. Now what's wrong with it is that it sets up a false confidence. It sets up a false what? Confidence in things that are not scriptural. The verses that apply to the secret rapture are actually verses that are all referring to the second coming of Jesus. So a lot of times there's verses that are taken completely out of context, like the verse in Luke 17 talking about left behind, or 2 Peter where it talks about God will come like a thief in the night. Those verses are always talking and referring to the second coming of Jesus. Now I'm going to elaborate for you once again. So take your Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter what? 17. And it's important to know about the second coming because people were deceived about the first coming of Jesus. And we don't want to be that way. We have God's word for us. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to Luke chapter 17. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. Amen. Luke chapter 17. And for those who aren't there, what's the page number? Okay, very good. You guys are helping me out. Okay, very good. Now let's start with verse 22. Luke chapter 17, starting with verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Now I want you to see just the simple logic of this, okay? It's very simple. Just follow along. He said to his disciples, the days will come where you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. 
For as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so the Son of Man will be in his day. So Jesus stops right there and he compares the second coming to what natural phenomena? Lightning, right? Lightning is not something that is secretive. Lightning is powerful, it's audible, it's visible. Now let's continue with this. I want you to be tracking what Jesus is saying. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when in the days of the Son of Man. Jesus elaborates. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Okay, so Jesus stops right there and he compares the second coming to Noah's time. He says there was a group of people that were doing things like eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Is there anything wrong with that? No, what's wrong with that is that God isn't mentioned in their lives whatsoever. So we have a group of people that are so secular-minded, we have a group of people who are completely devoid of anything spiritual. And then God goes a little bit further and says, but then there was Noah and his family. So how many groups of families, or groups of people do we see right here? Two, you see the unrighteous, and then you see the righteous. You see the saved, and then you see the unsaved. Now pay attention to that. Now I want you to keep going with me. Verse 28, likewise as it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they built. Nothing wrong with that, but God's not mentioned. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, Jesus compares the second coming to another story in Scripture, the story of Lot. When Lot and his family left Sodom and Gomorrah, they were saved. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was destroyed. Again, you see only two groups right here, the saved and the unsaved. Now let's continue with the logic of Jesus. In that day, he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Again, Jesus talks about two groups. One group will be saved and one group will be lost. Let's continue. Two women will be grinding together. One will be, ta one will be taken and the other left. One group that is saved and one group that is lost. Verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Jesus again talks about two groups. Now his disciples stop right there and said, wait, Jesus, we want to ask you one question. Watch what they say next. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? Where are these people going to be taken? What about the saved? We know what's going to happen to the saved, but what's going to happen to those who are left behind? Now watch what Jesus says right here. He said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles, or translated in the King James, vultures will be gathered. Now when you see vultures circling around in the desert at, at the sky, what does that usually indicate? There's a dead body. So watch what Jesus is saying right here. He says, look, at the end of time, there's only going to be two groups of people. He mentions not, nothing about a secret invisible rapture. He says, there's going to be the saved, and there's going to be the unsaved. There's going to be the righteous. There's going to be the unrighteous. And if you're not on board where the righteous are, you're going to be, obviously, in the other camp. 
And so what Jesus is saying right here is, look, at the end of time, there's only two groups of people. See, this theology about a secret rapture came in during the counter-reformation when the Protestants were bringing back the scriptures and righteousness by faith and all the beauty of God's word. And the Roman church said, no, 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 we don't want that to take place. And so this theology began to enter into the Dark Ages. They called it the Dark Ages simply because the Bible was taken away. It was locked in a dungeon and it became outlawed. People didn't have the light of God's word. So all this deception began to enter in during the Dark Ages. And it was during this time that that thinking also came in. And so what we have right now, we actually have a large majority of Christians who are looking for this secret rapture and telling themselves and telling their friends, it's okay, because if we miss the secret rapture, we're going to have a second chance. Do you see what's wrong with that? Because Jesus said, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not reject it as they did in the days of provocation when they tested me, and I swore in my wrath they will not enter into my rest. Jesus makes it very clear that today is the day of salvation, amen? And tomorrow is promised to no man. So all those verses that are used to describe the secret rapture are actually just pointing to the second, what? Coming. And when Jesus comes back, that's it, amen? Amen, okay, very good. Tomorrow morning's message at 1040 is entitled, God on Trial. You can come to that. That's just going to be a special morning message, and there's going to be a delicious lunch afterwards. Folks, as we continue with this series, you're going to discover that we'll develop greater confidence in God's Word. Are you loving the study of God's Word? Amen. Amen. Now, one of the greatest writers of Scripture, one of the most powerful men of all Scriptures, an example of godliness, and somebody who was a biblical hero was the man David. The man David. Even by the Jews, David is still revered. David is an individual who was somebody who followed God, who searched after God. He wrote a majority of the Psalms, and he describes God's faithfulness and God's goodness during trials. David says something in Psalm 43. I want you to pay attention to it. It's powerful. He said this, Oh, send out your light and your what? Truth. Send out your light and your truth. By the way, David also calls in Psalms 119, verse 105, he compares light to the word of God. So he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them what? Lead me. God is, is, the spirit of God is speaking through David, and David is praying. He says, God, I want to understand your will more. I want to understand your purposes more for my life. Now watch what he says right here. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your what? tabernacle. That's exactly right. David wanted to understand God's will more, and he said it was going to be found in the tabernacle or sanctuary. Now watch what David says right here. Your way, O God, is in the what? Sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? David understood that the best way to understand God's, understand God's will and God's plan for his life and to understand the chaos that was happening in the world and to try to make sense of it was to go to the sanctuary and there he would see in that educational model that was given to Israel, he would understand God's plans more, God's character more. Amen? And that's why it's very important for us to continue in the study of the sanctuary. 
Now we see in in Exodus 25, verse 8, God commanded the Israelites, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And it was at this place that God met with all the Israelites. And it was just a, a place of meeting where the Lord God of heaven and earth would come down and he would dwell with his people. And we remember the other day when we studied, we discovered that there were two compartments to the sanctuary. The first place was called the what? Holy place. Very good. And the second part was called the most holy place. That's exactly right. And what was in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. Very good. And on, in the most holy place, the high priest would go in only once a year. And every day, night and day, the regular priest would go into the holy place. But only once a year, the high priest would go in. Watch what the Bible says in Exodus 26, verse 33. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil, and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil what? Ripped. That's exactly right. Let's continue a little bit in this review. And what was inside the holy place, though? He put the lampstand, that's exactly right, in the tabernacle of the meeting, across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. Well, what was on the north side? He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil. He set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. So here we are, we're walking into the sanctuary, the holy place. What's on the left side? The lampstand, the candlestick, the menorah. What's on the right side? The showbread, that's exactly right. And what direction was the candlestick? South side, what direction was the showbread? And what would make the entrance of the sanctuary? East side. And do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what did the angels guard? What direction? The east entrance into the garden. And by the way, this is just a little bit of extra information. We'll study this out later. The Bible talks about Lucifer's fall in Isaiah 14, and he says, I will be like the Most High. I will rise above the heights of the clouds. I will set my throne above the stars of God. And he also says this, I will sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. What was he talking about? He was using sanctuary language. And we'll continue in this further. Exodus 40, verses 26 through 27, also describes what else was in the holy place. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle meeting in the front of the veil. He burned sweet, what? Incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So right there, you see three pieces of furniture in the holy place. You see the candlestick. You see the table of showbread. And right in front, you see the altar of incense. Okay, very good. Now, what was inside the most holy place? Ladies and gentlemen, the Ark. That's exactly right. The Ark of the Covenant. And what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. That's exactly right. But what was besides the Ark of the Covenant? The Law of Moses. That's exactly right. Now watch what the Bible says about the most holy place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7. But in the second part, the high priest went, when? Alone once a year. The high priest... In the, and sometime in the year, just by himself, he would go into the most holy place. And this special day was called the Day of Judgment. All of Israel had to be gathered there. And if they didn't gather there, they could be cut off from all of Israel. 
What was that high priest doing? He was cleansing the sanctuary. He was what? Cleansing, cleansing the sanctuary. What does that mean? Well, what would take place every single day and night, the priest would take the blood of the lambs that were sacrificed and they would bring it into the holy place, sprinkling it upon the different altars. The blood stayed in the holy place. And it was a representation that the sin of the people was transferred away from the people and into the holy place where it was. But once a year on the day of judgment, the day of atonement, the high priest would come in and he would start the cleansing of the sanctuary. And there, the sin, symbolized by the blood, would be eliminated. Watch this. Once a year, the high priest would come to the most sacred part of the temple to offer the sacrifice on behalf of all Israel. It was the day of judgment. And all of Israel would be gathered on the day of judgment. And do you remember what the high priest wore? Bells. That's exactly right. You can read about that in Deuteronomy. And as long as the children of Israel would hear the... I need a bell right now. As long as they could hear the bells, they knew what? The high priest was alive. That's exactly right. And so this would take place, and when the high priest would come out, there'd be this powerful celebration, exciting celebration. The people would scream, God has accepted Israel. And they were so excited because their sin was completely eliminated. But that wasn't the end of the service. They would take that goat that wasn't sacrificed and they would lead him out by a fit man in the middle of the wilderness and it would represent the final completion of sin, the elimination of all transgression, the scapegoat. That's exactly right. Very good memory. This day of atonement or day of at one mint when God would be one with his people was called Yom Kippur. Can you say that with me? Yom Kippur, very good. We oftentimes hear that in media the, for the Jewish people. It's Yom Kippur. But what that was was simply the day of judgment or the day of atonement. And I want you to pay attention to the word atonement. And I want you to see something. The day of at one mint. And what it was describing, the day of your atonement, the day of judgment, the Yom Kippur, it was describing how God had accepted all of Israel and they were one with God again. Can you say amen to that? The sanctuary model was throughout the entire Old Testament and you're going to understand what it has to do with end time prophecy. Now watch what the book of Hebrews says. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We found out that through scripture that Moses wasn't making an original sanctuary. He was making a copy of what? The true tabernacle and the true sanctuary, the true temple. And where was that? In heaven. That's exactly right. That's what Hebrews says, that God was a minister of the true tabernacle in heaven, and he built it and not another man. Now, this has been a very interesting point throughout all of Scripture. This sanctuary model, this center of all of Israel's economy, was attacked throughout all of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Now, you're thinking to yourself, the sanctuary was attacked. What do you mean? What you find out throughout scripture, you will find that the devil often tempted the people of God and tempted the pagan nations to attack Israel. And what they would try to center their attack upon was the sanctuary. 
The first sanctuary was turned into Solomon's temple, and Solomon's temple was destroyed. We found out that Herod, in the New Testament, rebuilt the sanctuary, but guess what? Even that was destroyed in A.D. 70. Throughout the history of Israel, the devil hadn't really, really led the different people to really attack Israel, but specifically honing in on the sanctuary. Because they knew, because the devil and his angels knew, that that was the very anchor of the Jewish economy, and there was something that it represented. And we're going to find out that the devil has not stopped in his attack on the sanctuary, but now he has directed his attack towards the heavenly sanctuary, which the Bible says, are, which is the true, and the rest are just copies. Now, why does the devil hate the sanctuary? Why does he hate this foundation of the Jewish economy? Why does he hate this anchor of the Jewish religion? You're going to find out here are a few different reasons why the devil hates the sanctuary. And I want you to write that down in your study guide. Number one, the sanctuary is the location of the origin of the great controversy. In other words, what you find in the sanctuary is a model of God's throne. It's a model of what? God's throne. And the devil hates it because that was the very place that he fell away from God. You also discover that the sanctuary was an exact replica of God's throne, and the devil hated anything to do with the sanctuary. It was as if a reminder was placed on earth that showed him, hey, this is where you fell from me. You also found out in the sanctuary, the plan of redemption was revealed. The plan of what? Redemption was revealed. The devil knew it, and he knew that in order to make people understand or feel something about God that wasn't true, in order to have people doubt the goodness of God, he would attack the very educational point of the Jewish religion, the sanctuary. Now imagine this. Imagine if there are two countries that are at war. One country is winning the war. The other country decides that they are going to develop a weapon that is going to completely win the war. So what they have to do is make sure that weapon is transported properly. The other country, in wanting to make sure that doesn't happen, what they're going to do is, good, is going to be to try to destroy that weapon. Because they know if that weapon is activated... It will win the war. Folks, I want you to understand something. The devil knew something about that sanctuary. He knew that the way of God was found in the sanctuary. He knew the plan of redemption was found in the sanctuary. He also knew that the sanctuary was simply a copy of the real deal in heaven. And he knew that if that thing was completed, if the process took place, he would be a cooked goose. And so he was well aware of it. And throughout the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament and today's time, the devil has made the focal point the sanctuary of God. And what you also find the sanctuary represents, it represents the end of the great controversy. It represents the end of suffering, the end of sin, and the end of rebellion. And here's a, here's a good example of that. Found in Psalms 37. Watch what David says right here. But these are the ungodly. David was surrounded by the ungodly and all the unwicked, by the wicked, and he was concerned about the future. But look what he says. When I thought to how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood there. What's that next word? Sanctuary. 
And David understood that the end of suffering, the end of sin, the end of wickedness, the end of pain was going to be seen in the sanctuary model. And folks, this is exactly why the devil has sought to destroy the sanctuary. Are we tracking so far? Yes or no? Amen. Okay, very good. Now we're about to jump in, and you're going to see something powerful right here. The devil has a front man on earth. He's called the Antichrist. He's called the what? Antichrist. That's exactly right. And we discovered from Scripture, and by the way, next week you're going to, we're going to unveil the identity of the Antichrist. He's going to be exposed, and you're going to know who he is straight from the Word of God. You don't want to miss it. Here are some of the biblical names for the Antichrist power. Number one, he's called the man of sin. Number two, he's called the lawless one. Why? What does he have a problem with? The law of God. He's called the beast of Revelation 13. He's called the son of perdition. And by the way, there was only one other person in Scripture who was called the son of perdition. Who knows who that is? Judas. Jesus says, I have lost none except the son of perdition. And now you have the Antichrist being called the son of perdition. Why? Because God is trying to point out that the Antichrist is a Judas. Number five, he's also called the little horn power of Daniel chapter 7 and also Daniel chapter 8. I want you to pay attention to this. These are all names that are referring to the same power, the Antichrist power, and the devil uses this power to attack God's sanctuary in heaven. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, how is the devil going to attack the sanctuary in heaven? Folks, you continue to come to this seminar, you're going to see straight from the word of God how he's accomplishing that. Now let's go to the book of Daniel. And Daniel sees something in vision, something so remarkable, he's going to see the attack on the sanctuary. Daniel chapter 8, take your Bible, let's go there right now. Page 866. Now let's start with verse 1. Daniel sees something so unusual in vision. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see this, Daniel sees this. Now watch verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. A what? A vision. That is when something takes place during the day. This is in a sleep. This is in a dream. This is taking place right in the middle of the day. This powerful apparition. And Daniel is stuck in vision and he sees something remarkable. Watch what Daniel sees in vision. Verse 2. I saw in the vision and so it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in a vision I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw there, standing beside the river, was a ram. Was a what? Ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So Daniel's watching right by the river, and he sees something so remarkable. He sees this very unusual mutant ram. He sees a what? A ram. I wish you'd say mutant ram, okay? He saw this mutant ram. One of the horns was bigger than the other, and it was very aggressive, and it was just moving really fast. And Daniel's watching this and wondering to himself, what does this mean? Well, you're going to find out straight from the word of God what it means. Now watch what happens next. Verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable, what? Horn between his eyes. And then he came to that ram that had two horns, which I saw, which I'd seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious 
power. So all of a sudden, Daniel sees this unusual goat, this very masculine goat, and it is not even galloping. Its legs are off the ground, and it's just flying at bullet speed, and it's about to see this powerful, just this powerful impact. And Daniel is watching the whole thing, wondering to himself, what does this mean? Let's continue. Verse 7, I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram and broke his horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground, trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. By the way, what happened to that ram when it collided with that goat? He completely demolished that ram. Sorry for the ram, right? I want you to pay attention to this. Anytime you see animals in Bible prophecy, it is representing a nation. It is representing an entity. It's representing a what? A nation or a kingdom, right? And so what Daniel was seeing from Bible prophecy, he was seeing the nation of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians had an alliance, but the Persians had more power than the Medes, and that's why one of the horns was bigger than the other. And then all of a sudden, the Medes and the Persians were conquered by the kingdom of, who came after the Medes and Persians? Greece. Greece, that's exactly right. But who led the kingdom of Greece? Alexander, Alexander the Great. Now you're thinking to yourself, Anel, how did you come up with that? It's in scripture. Go all the way to verse 20. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of? Medium and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. There you have scripture interpret scripture. Can you say amen to that? But this is where it gets very remarkable. Now you're saying, wait a second, didn't we learn about this on night number one? How we learned about the four metal man statue and how the kingdom of Greece would come after the Medes and Persians. Why is God showing Daniel some more? Because what God is now revealing to Daniel is what happens next. Something unusual takes place after this massive collision. Go all the way to verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very strong, but when he was strong, the horn, large horn was, what? Broken, and place of it four, what? Notable horns came up towards the four winds of heaven. Look in any history book, and you'll find that when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into amongst his four generals. His four generals. That is absolute history. No one will contend that fact. And that's exactly what the scripture showed. This was the same passage that the Jews actually presented to Alexander the Great when he showed up. And he then wanted the, the, the scriptures made in Greek. And that's where we get Septuagint, the, the version of the 70. Okay, so watch what happens next. This is interesting. Verse 9. Out of one of them came a little what? Verse 9. A little horn. Now this is the dangerous little horn. Came, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Look at verse 11. He exalted himself even as high as the prince of the host. Now pay attention, the word prince is capitalized, that's P, and that's a reference to Jesus. Jesus is called the prince of peace, right? But watch what the Bible is saying, that this little horn power is exalting himself, whoever this is, and you can discover next week who it is, he's exalting himself as high as Jesus. He's calling himself Lord, he's trying to exalt himself, and he says, I am just as high in rank as Jesus is. 
whoever this power is, we're going to understand more. Let's continue. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his what? Sanctuary. What happened to the sanctuary? Was cast down. Now, this is something very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this little horn power, this devious power that is showing up. He's showing up sometime after the nation of Greece. After Greece had done its work, there was this little horn power that showed up, and this little horn power was exalting himself, even to the, to the rank of Jesus. He's calling himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and then he's attacking the sanctuary. It even says that by him, the sacrifices that were taking place were done away with. So Daniel was watching this thing, and he is so blown away. And I want to tell you why. Because the sanctuary that was on earth was already destroyed. And Daniel's scratching his head and thinking to himself, who or what is this little horn power attacking? And you'll understand, he was attacking the sanctuary in heaven. You'll see more evidence for that. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast what to the ground? Truth. He cast it to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, I want you to pay attention to the simple logic, the simple sequence. You had the, and the, the Medes and the Persians. They were stopped by the Grecians. But after the Grecians, this little power came up. He exalted himself, this little power. He called himself God. And then he begins to attack God's sanctuary, interrupting the sacrifices that are taking place there. He cast the sanctuary on the ground. He stopped the mediation that was taking place. And he did all these things, and the Bible says he prospered. He was successful with this. And like I said, it's so important for you to be here next week because you will know who this power is. And Daniel is watching this whole thing, and Daniel is so amazed by this, and all of a sudden Daniel comes out of that vision, and he starts wondering, wait a second, what just happened? But right before he came out, watch this. Go all the way to verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? A voice comes out from Daniel's vision and says, How long is all this devious work going to take place? How long is the sanctuary going to be cast down? How long is this pompous, arrogant power going to reign forth? Now watch, as this question is given, the answer is supplied. Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the what? Sanctuary shall be cleansed. So all of a sudden, as Daniel was watching this whole vision take place, a question is asked, how long is this massive problem going to last for? How long is this devious work going to continue? And Daniel is just wondering, whoa, that's a very good question. And all of a sudden, the voice says, this will continue for 2,300 days days. And Daniel was blown away at that very moment. Whoa! But Daniel didn't quite understand it. Look at this. Go all the way to verse 17. Verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face, and he said to me, understand, the Son of Man, that the vision refers to the time of the and so this vision was actually made for the time of the end. Now that's extremely important because, folks, we're living in the time of the end. 
So this vision is extremely important for the people of God today. This vision was not given for Daniel's time to be understood, but the angel tells Daniel this vision is for the time of the end. The time of the end. Now watch this. Go all the way to verse 27. I want you to see straight what the scriptures are teaching. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards I arose, went about the king's business, and was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So did Daniel understand this vision, yes or no? No, you read straight from scripture. Here he is, he's scratching his head, and he says, wait a second, what does all of this mean? What is this 2,300 days? What is that referring to? Where do I even begin with this? And so he gets out of that vision, and he finds Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, you guys, I have this unusual vision about this 2,300 days. I have no clue what it's about. Can you tell me? And they looked at him. They started scratching their head, too. We don't know. But when Daniel's in trouble, what does he always do? Daniel prays. You can remember that in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel prays. But here's Daniel's difficult dilemma. Number one, the earthly sanctuary was destroyed, so what could this be referring to? Number two, the vision applied to the time of the end. So he had no clue what this was talking about. And then, when does this 2300-day prophecy even start? You can't find the end of the 2300-day prophecy if you don't have a, a beginning of the 2300-day prophecy. And so you know what Daniel begins to do? You read of all of Daniel chapter 9, he begins to pray. Folks, if you're ever put in a difficult situation, you need to pray. I love what one author said. She says, in every difficulty, we are to see a call to prayer. And if you ever need somebody to pray for you, folks, I'll be here after the meetings. But guess what? Those table leaders that are at your tables are willing to pray for you. So if you're a table leader, I want you to raise your hand right now. If you want your table leaders to pray for you, you don't have to pray with them at that moment. Just say, brother, sister, I want you to pray for me. I promise you this, those people are going to pray for you. Can you say amen to that? God has the answers for our troubles today. Can you say amen to that? And so Daniel begins his praying and this fasting, and here he is, he is searching his heart. You can read of all of Daniel chapter 9. He is praying that God would forgive the sins of Israel. He, would for, he was asking that God would forgive his own sins, and he was pleading, Lord, we need an answer for this 2300-day prophecy. We don't know what it means. We have no clue what the 2300-day prophecy means. Now, I always tell this very interesting story because I believe it's very relevant. You know, one day I was driving in the city of Hanford. Anybody ever been to Hanford? Okay, Hanford it has another name. It's called Cowtown. <laughs> you ever been to Hanford? It smells like cows there. I have a good friend. He's a pastor there, and he doesn't notice the smell, and some of the other individuals don't notice the smell, but it's a great place. There are great people there. One day I was driving through Hanford, and you get lost in some of these corn mazes, and you end up taking a right on one place, you take a left on another place, and you end up in some very desolate areas of Hanford sometimes. Well, I got lost one day as I was driving through Hanford. I was trying to find where my friend's place was. So I called him up, and I said, Andrew, I have a question for you. And he said, yes. I said, where is your house? And he says, here's a good question for you. Where are you? And I said, if I knew where I was, then I wouldn't be lost, but I don't know where I am. The point is very simple. You can't know, you don't know the destination until you know the beginning, right? You take your cell phone, right? And you say, okay, the 2300-day prophecy, and it's going to ask you what? The starting point. 
Because when you have the starting point, the current location, you know where the beginning is. And when you know where the beginning is, you know how to get to the end. Daniel's problem was he he knew what the time period was, the 2300-day prophecy, but he had no idea where to even begin. And there were so many other things that were confusing him. So what he begins to do in Daniel chapter 9, he begins to pray. He begins to what? Pray. He wants to understand this vision that was for the time of the end. He wanted to understand what this all meant, and specifically the 2300 days. How does it even begin? And sure enough, what you discover in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel. The angel who? Gabriel. Take your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 9, go to verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, before before the holy mountain of God, that's Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, page 868, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to what? Understand. What you find in Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel praying. So obviously this angel is appearing to Daniel to give him understanding about the vision that he was confused about that happened in Daniel chapter 8. You can read about that tonight. Let's continue with this. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly what? Beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the... Vision. So this angel comes to Daniel and says, all right, Daniel, I'm here to help you. You wanted to understand this vision. I'm here to give you skill. I'm here to help you show you what the legend is. You're going to know what this 2300-day prophecy is all about. You're going to understand when it starts. And you know what's so remarkable? What Gabriel then gives Daniel is the beginning of the 70-week prophecy. So what was he showing Daniel in regards to the 70-week prophecy? When you read it in context, you discover that the 70-week prophecy was simply the starting point of this big prophecy called the 2300-day prophecy. That was the reason why Gabriel appeared to Daniel. He was to help Daniel find the starting point for the 2300-day prophecy. You can read it in context. You can see the sequence. Gabriel appeared to Daniel to help him understand the 2300-day prophecy when it starts. Now, on night number three, we covered the 70-week prophecy. Excuse me, night number four. So if you missed that, all you need to do is just turn, go see Glenn right there. Glenn, do you mind raising your hand? And Glenn will help you get the 70-week prophecy. That is one message you don't want to miss. It's called Prophecy's Answer to the Skeptics. So God gives Daniel the vision of the 70 weeks. And the 70-week prophecy, remember we learned in Bible prophecy that a day equals one year. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, and Numbers 14, that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. So 70 weeks is how many days? 490. In prophecy, how many years would be 490 days? 490 years, right? And do you remember we learned about the 490-week prophecy or the 70-week prophecy? We learned that the beginning was in 457 B.C. and it ended exactly 34 A.D. That's 490 years. And what we found was that God came during those 70 weeks. 
This vision was supplied as the very first starting point of the 2300-day prophecy. And so all we need to do is take the 70-week prophecy, the first street, type it into our GPS, and we're going to know when the 2300-day prophecy ends. Well, we discovered the 70-week prophecy started in 457 B.C. So all we need to do is now take 2300 days or 2300 years in Bible prophecy, and that's going to lead us to a specific year, A.D. 1844. 1844. This was the end of the 2300-day prophecy exactly on this year. Now, why is that so remarkable? Is this just something God wants us to use our brains so we learned a little math? Maybe if you're in Scott Wynn's class, he might like that. He's a math teacher. But, folks, I want you to understand something. Something so powerful was taking place here that Daniel didn't quite understand it. And a lot of people during the 1800s began studying out this prophecy using very biblical principles. You had Catholics. You had Methodists. You had Presbyterians. You had all sorts of different denominations, and they were studying this prophecy all around the same time, not just in America, but in South America, in Europe. All these individuals at the same time simultaneously began to understand this prophecy, and they were all coming to the exact same conclusion that something big was about to happen in 1844. And what you found during the 1800s was called the Great Awakening. It's considered the biggest or the greatest revival that took place in America's history. And throughout the entire world, a lot of people thought something big was going to happen in 1844. You had Catholics, you had Methodists, you had Baptists, you had Anabaptists, you had all sorts of denominations. They were all coming together. They were searching their hearts. They could see that Scripture was very true. The principles were all there. They were not taking things out of context or trying to get something that was way off there in the shadows of the Scriptures. They looked at what the Bible Bible was saying, and they all came to the same conclusion simultaneously something big was going to happen, not just in America, but in South America, in Europe, and even in India. Praise the Lord. <laughs> they knew something big was about to happen, and they believed that the 2300 day prophecy that was referring to the sanctuary being cleansed, that that was the time when Jesus would come back on earth and cleanse the earthly sanctuary. And so you had this great revival taking place all over the world. One man was William Miller. Another man was a Jesuit. Another man was a Methodist minister. And they were studying this out. And simultaneously, without even having knowledge of each other, they were all coming to the exact same conclusion that Jesus was about to come in 1844. The problem was, the problem was they were right about the date, wrong about the event. They were right about the date, wrong about the event. Jesus did something big in 1844, and what he did was not come back to earth. He began the second phase of the sanctuary ministry. In 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place and thus began the work of judgment. Now let me ask you a question. Does anybody know here when the book of Revelation was written? Yes, when was the book of Revelation written? It was around A.D. 90 is when most scholars believe the book of Revelation was written. 
And John is seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation several times. And in vision, in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, John is seeing Jesus, and Jesus is next to a candlestick. He is seeing Jesus, and Jesus is next to the altar of incense. He is seeing Jesus, and what he is seeing Jesus is, in, in, in the location of Jesus in heaven, Jesus was in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Folks, if I was to say to you something, I was to say this. I want you to think of the room that I'm in right now. There are pews there. There's a pulpit there. There's a long runway down the window. Where would you think I am? You would say, well, you're inside the church, right? Think about this. If Jesus in vision in AD 90, when John is seeing this, Jesus is next to the candlesticks, he's next to the altar of incense, and he himself is the bread of life, folks, where is Jesus before 1844? In the holy place. And it wasn't until 1844 that the sanctuary began the work of cleansing and Jesus entered into the most holy place and began the work of judgment. What is the work of judgment? We talked a little bit about this, but folks, I want you to understand something. All our sins that are confessed are taken into that heavenly sanctuary. The work of judgment, the day of atonement, is when God goes through all those books and he's putting the final stamp on it and saying, case closed, case closed, case closed, and sins are in the process of being eliminated. Watch what this, this actual scene was actually found in Daniel chapter 7, the scene of the great judgment beginning in 1844. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair of head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and its wheels. Wheels are used for one thing, transporting. Its wheels, a burning fire, a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. What took place in heaven 1844? God began the final phrase, or final phase of the sanctuary message or the sanctuary work. And he began the work of judgment, the work of cleansing. And that was the word that was the word Yom Kippur was used to describe this in an earthly sense. What would one, ta one day take place in heaven? And Jesus is going through all the books of the righteous, starting with Adam, and he is making his way all the way down to the very end of the righteous. And what he is doing is putting the final stamp and saying, he's in, he's in, he's in. And he's going through all the different people throughout the Old Testament, starting with the very first righteous person and making his way. Look what the Bible says right here in 1 Peter. The time has become for judgment to begin at the house of God, so where does God start his judgment work? He starts it with the righteous. And since 1844, Jesus began the work of putting the final stamp, case closed for Adam. When I come back the second time, Adam's going to be allowed in heaven. And then he begins to make his way. This was the work of judgment. This was the final phase of the sanctuary message. In fact, what does God take into judgment? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, rather good or evil. When God is looking at the life of an individual, he's bringing all these things into judgment. He's looking at all the cases. And folks, there ain't no better judge than Jesus. Amen? I knew a friend one day. 
he had, he had lost a father who had committed suicide. You ever know somebody who committed suicide? And you hear all sorts of things of what might happen to that person. But this individual, he lost his father in suicide. But he said something so remarkable. He says, I don't know the fate of my father. But I do know this. Right now, he's in the hands of the most merciful judge in the universe. Amen. Amen? And we can trust God. That God knows best to deal with people. And I praise God that he's the judge and not me. Can you say amen to that? Oh, we would have been in a whole bunch of trouble. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Pay attention to this end time message. And the reason why it's end time, you'll discover, because it also deals with the mark of the beast, which we'll also get into. Revelation 14, verse 7. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his, say that next word, judgment has come. Even the end time message is pointing out that God's work that started in 1844, this message of judgment has started and God is putting that final stamp of approval upon all the righteous dead, but one day it will come to the righteous living. And God will take everything into judgment, all our lives, our situations, our origins, and who knows our circumstances, he knows our weaknesses, but folks, if you accept Jesus right now as your Savior, if you allow him to change your heart, you will discover that when your name comes up for judgment in the future, that there's going to be a beautiful word there written in red, and it's going to say forgiven. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, one day had this crazy nightmare. He had this crazy nightmare. He, in this dream, he was sleeping, and all of a sudden he woke up, in the dream, and he saw, he heard a knock. And so he says, come in. And in entered the devil. And the, the devil turns to Martin Luther, and he says, is your name Martin Luther? And Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, that's my name. And he says, Martin Luther, and he pulls out this scroll. And he says, Martin Luther, this is yours. And he rolls out this scroll. And the screw goes all the way down into the other room. And he says, did you commit this sin? And Martin Luther says, yes. And he says, did you commit this sin? And Martin Luther says, yes. And he begins to go down this scroll over each sin, pointing out each sin over and over and over again. And Martin Luther is just listening and watching this whole scene. He's becoming more discouraged. And all of a sudden, he notices something. He notices that the devil is clutching the top of the scroll. And as the devil continues to point out every single sin, Martin Luther stops him and says, wait a second, what's at the top of the scroll? And the devil said, I'm not showing you. And he says, move your hand, Satan. And Satan reluctantly moves his hand, and there at the top, written in red blood ink, forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know what, folks? If you accept God as your Savior, if you let Jesus save you, if you continue on in the message of understanding the judgment hour that we're now living in, folks, when your name comes up, the blood of Jesus will be there to cover the sins. Do you want that? You know, I was reading a very interesting story about a judge in Virginia. His name was Donald McDowden. And he did something so interesting. There were, he was a judge who had gone through so many different cases. That week, almost 150 housing cases. And so this one case was brought to him of this couple that was deaf. 
And they were brought there with the landlord, and the landlord said, these people owe me $250. They can't pay up. They need to be evicted. And he showed him the evidence. And the judge saw this couple and saw some of their tears. They had a little child. And he knew that the landlord was right, though. He knew the landlord was right. And he says to them, you guys need to pay up. And he put his mallet down. And he says, he says these people need to pay the fee, fine, the penalty, what's owed? And everybody got up, and all of a sudden, this judge says, hold on one second, goes in the back, comes back after a few minutes, and hands the couple $250. And he says, this case is now closed. Folks, what's so remarkable about that is all the lawyers, there's about four attorneys, they all started giving money to that couple as well. But guess what? In the judgment, when your name comes up, you're going to want Jesus standing by your side. You're going to want him there. You're going to want him right next to you, folks. And if you don't have him now, you're not going to have him later. If you don't have him now, you're not going to have him later. But Jesus is calling you today. He says, accept me as your Savior and let me do the work I want to do in your life. Say yes to me and continue on this journey. Folks, you're going to be ready. And that name comes up. You're going to be ready. And your case is going to be closed one day and there's going to be this red print on the sign that's going to say, not guilty. Amen. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Amen. We're living in a judgment time right now, folks. And Jesus is saying, I'm your best chance you got. I'm the best chance you got. And if you want Jesus in your life, if you want him to stand for you in that judgment day, folks, I want to challenge you to stand right now where you're at. If you say, Lord, I want Jesus to stand for me in that judgment, I want you to stand where you're at. Amen. Amen. Folks, heaven is worth it to us. Amen? And we're done with week number one. We only got two weeks left. And I promise you this, what you're going to see at the very end of these two weeks is going to blow your mind away. But Jesus stands for us today, and he'll stand for us in that judgment time too as well. Let's pray, church family. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Lord, because you are an advocate, and you promise that if we accept you, Lord, and we follow after you, that you will stand for us in this judgment hour that has begun. And when our name comes up, Lord, we know that you will be by our side. And you will not leave us to the accusations of Satan. I pray, God, as we continue in this journey, Father, please help us learn more and understand more about this time that we're living in, this judgment hour. Prepare your people in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.